1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us for another great episode today. But before we get to today's guest, I want to tell you about a few things that I think will be of interest to you. So first of all, my book, Shift Your Mind, came out in October. It's all about how you can set your mind for preparation and how that's actually different than how you should set your mind in performance. So we break down nine mental shifts. That can help you thrive in preparation and performance so if you like these conversations i think you're going to like the book as well you can buy the hard copy on amazon barnes noble and wherever books are sold and if you are someone that likes to learn through your ears we also have the book available on audible so thanks to all of you that have enjoyed the book so far and if you are new to the podcast hopefully you will check out the book as well Additionally, if you like today's episode or any of our past shows, we'd really appreciate it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. Ideally, you would give us five stars. And we just really appreciate those of you that continue to support the podcast, whether it's writing a review or sharing these conversations on social media. It really is how we expand our community and expand our reach. So thanks to all of you for your continued support. Now to today's guest. Rachel Tipograph is the CEO and founder of a company called Micmac. Micmac is an enterprise marketing e-commerce platform that helps brands better understand consumers by connecting digital investments to online retailer insights. And we're gonna learn a little bit about what Rachel and her company does. Look, Rachel has been awarded all of those illustrious awards for really smart people that do big things in business at a young age. Forbes listed her as one of its 30 under 30 who are changing the world. She's been named one of the 50 most influential women in America by Marie Claire. Fast Company named her one of the most creative people in business. And look, she's got tons of other awards from all kinds of different outlets. But I think the coolest one that I saw was Business Insider named her one of New York tech's coolest people. But beyond all of the cool recognitions and awards, What I think is really going to come across in this conversation is how much Rachel values the culture that she's creating at MCMAC, how intentional she is with her own leadership and her own development, and really how much she cares about the whole person amongst the 100 people that work at her company. Look, this is a company that is growing fast. They have raised millions of dollars. They are profitable. They are humming and they are rolling. But Rachel is really thoughtful about what she wants to create and intentional about where they are going. So... Without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you, Rachel Tipograph. Rachel, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We have to start by shouting out your cousin, Stu, who I grew up with and went to camp with for many, many years. And Stu always had height that I did not have. And he has a nice, nice lefty jump shot in basketball. And Stu's jump shot, made it, it It might be gone. It might not still be there, but I know he'll appreciate me shouting out his jump shot. And at the end of the day, I think we talked about this. Stu is one of the most kind people that I know and uh, just an energetic guy and somebody who seems to always be smiling. And Stu, I appreciate your smile and I appreciate you connecting us together, me, me and Rachel. So Rachel, what I'd love to start with is, I know you didn't grow up with Stu as a next door neighbor or in the DC area, but tell me about what life was like for you as a kid. And uh, that's where I'd love to just start.
0: Sure. And I agree with you. Stu is one of the kindest uh, people I've ever met and I'm lucky that he's a family member. Uh, Let's see. So I grew up 10 miles outside of New York city uh, in Bergen County, New Jersey. And my whole life, I honestly knew I was going to become an entrepreneur. So uh, like you, Stu and I have a family where at least our American roots started in the sporting goods industry. And I used to dream of what I was going to call my local sporting goods store uh, and draw the logo and fascinated, fascinated about that. Um, And I have two parents that have operated small businesses my entire life. uh, And that's, been a key driving force is to figure out what my place was going to be in the world.
1: Sporting goods. What what, what was the sporting goods store that you all were involved with?
0: Uh, our great, well, we weren't involved, but uh, to be clear, but our great grandfather was Henry Modell and he created Modell Sporting Goods.
1: So I don't think I knew that about Stu or about your family. And I don't think Stu would know this, but my family had a sporting goods store in Washington, D.C. called Atlas Sporting Goods. And so my dad has many memories going with his grandpa to the sporting goods store mm-hmm. and running it. And so it's it's that's just an interesting thing that I never even knew about Stu. And I think most people probably don't even know that about my family. Um, and, and so it's just interesting.
0: Yeah, we all started in the schmata industry.
1: And so we're going to get into probably an element of you from an entrepreneurship standpoint that blossomed at 13 when you you're bat Mitzvah and uh, you start playing with eBay. But before we get to that, I'm curious, what were your parents talking to you about, about entrepreneurship? What were some of the messaging that you might've heard from your grandparents about business ownership? Because it's interesting that you were clear on that from a young age. What were some of the stories or or values that might've been embedded into you from a young age.
0: Yeah. And for better or worse, I think one of the things that my parents taught my brother and I have a younger brother is work ethic. You know, I just grew up in a house where you kind of just thought the work week was six days a week. Like I, I didn't know that that wasn't the case. Sunday was always family day, but Saturday it always felt like work still continued. Um, And I think the fact that my parents run, still today, um, independent businesses from each other, but I watched them as partners. Like I watched my father provide my mother advice and I watched my mother provide my father advice on their respective businesses just at the dinner table. And via osmosis, I think I internalized more than I ever realized like I'll, I will never forget, my dad did a lot of uh, speaking engagements in his industry. And at 10 years old, he's showing me his PowerPoint slides, asking me if I think they're funny or not. But at a very young age, I started to learn how to tell stories through slides. And then my mother, uh, she's incredible at marketing and PR and being able to pitch yourself, learning about that at eight, at 12, at 14, And also having a mother that ran a business and thinking that was the norm as well. uh, It was just inspiring.
1: It's interesting because I'm thinking about Models and you end up working for Gap as well was retail. And I think about working on Saturdays as being also a Mm -hmm. a retail thing was that I, do you think it comes from some of the retail background as far as the, yeah, go ahead.
0: Yeah, I would say it's less to do with retail and more what I would call like the immigrant mentality. Um, You know, my mom, her father came to the US when he was in his thirties from Russia and he worked in Broadway, like on the business side. He worked seven days a week. And I think both of my parents just kind of have this immigrant work ethic mentality. But the other part of it is, is that they've always only worked on things that they love. And so I never grew up in a household where someone came home and complained about the career path that they were on. Um, And so I think when you love what you do, and, you know, we were alluding to this earlier before we started the podcast, you figure out the right balance of how to weave your life into work. It actually can be really harmonious.
1: Was there any downside to both your parents working and, and being passionate about their work. Is there any downside on how that impacted you and your brother?
0: A (laughs) hundred percent. We're still in therapy for it. Um, yeah, I mean, there are some memories that my parents, you know, would not want me to share, but by having parents that both worked full-time jobs, you know, we, we had a babysitter. I felt like the babysitter at times was more of our parent than our actual parents. And those, I think those are tough moments for parents and children. Um, and also, you know, my brother and I really internalized a lot of our identity and self-worth from work. And my, my girlfriend, Sammy, um, I think one of the reasons why I love her is that she is so different than me in this way, where she sees a lot of her identity from who she is as a person and all the things that she loves to do outside of work. And, uh, I think you need a balance in life. Um, I still love my childhood and I love my parents and they're both of my brother and I are biggest fans. But, uh, when it comes the day that I bring children into this world, I think I'm going to have to be really conscious to make sure that they don't see their identity as work.
1: That's a really thoughtful concept i see it with athletes who their identity is always attached to performing and for sports it's often on a stage or in an arena and i see this with college athletes who are deemed athletes from a young age and then they're a soccer player they're field hockey or volleyball and now they graduate from college and now who are they they're rachel they're brian Um, and they struggle with that identity and it's one of the things we talk about a lot is you know basketball is what you do it's not who you are and making sure that you're aware of that. Yet at the same time, we bring ourselves to work. (laughs) Like we are those people as well. Um, So it's interesting as you tried to suss out the identity and where you're getting self-worth from because it is a slippery slope if your self-worth is just about maximizing at work um, and that word maximize is something I wanted to pull on with you. Were you someone who was a maximizer when you were young? Were you someone who wanted to be great in the areas you pursued or that you were passionate about? Uh, tell me about some of the things that you were doing as a kid and, and what you were like.
0: Yeah. Um, I think I've always saw myself as the underdog and there's a few things that go into it. Uh, one, unlike Stu, most of the typographs are actually quite short. He's uh, the anomaly and I love sports, but I, I'm i really small. So this is actually a joke with a lot of my employees because I haven't met most of them in real life because it's the pandemic. Uh, everyone is like, oh, wait till you meet Rachel. She's actually really small in real life. And um, so I think from the, the physicality of who I am and then uh, always wanting to excel, but not having like natural born talent. And what I mean by that is my brother, he got like practically a 1600 on his SATs and he never studied. I fought for every single point that I got on the SATs. Um, And then the last part, you know, and it's taken me, I would say most of my adult life to really deeply understand this. You know, I'm gay, I'm very proud to be gay. My brother's also gay. I came out later in life. And my whole life, I knew that I was different, but it took me a while to identify that that difference was actually my sexuality. And I think all of those things combined have always caused me to see myself as the underdog. And I am so competitive with myself. For example, when I started Micmac six years ago, I was like, I'm never going to IPF today. I actually believe that one day you might see McMack on stage with NASDAQ.
1: Why why were you why were you against IPOing?
0: It wasn't that I was against it. It's that I believed that I wasn't capable of it.
1: Ah. Mm.
0: And that's what fuels me in life is every single day I believe that I'm not capable of doing something. And then I set on a path to prove myself that I can.
1: That's beautiful. I, I, It's interesting for me that I went to, well, why wouldn't you want to IPO? Whereas, really, what was going on for you was that you didn't see yourself IPOing. And that's like mm-hmm. such a big little nuance there mm-hmm. that, that I appreciate. You said your brother and you both are gay. What was it like to come out to your parents or your friends from your perspective? And if there's anything you want to share from his perspective, if it was different or similar, I'd be,
0: I'm just. Yeah. So my brother's three years younger than me, but he came out much earlier in life. He came out in high school. Coming out in the early 2000s in suburban New Jersey, which is extremely heteronormative, not easy. So honestly, my brother is way more brave than I am. Um, I came out when I was 27. And to quote my brother, when I came out, he goes, Rach, every girl in Brooklyn's gay. Like I wasn't special. Um, and so for me coming out later in life, you know, the zeitgeist of the world had changed. This is 2014, you know, a year later, Obama legalizes gay marriage in the U S. Um, it was a lot easier to do it. It was still extremely difficult for me to do it. Cause it took 27 years of courage to work up to that moment. And, but soon as I did it, I mean, my life just got exponentially better. Everyone was so supportive, even at work. I'll never forget when I, at the time when I came out, I was working at Gap, I led Global Digital, and I came out to my boss, who was the global CMO, and he was like, he just gave me a hug. Like, he just, it was a really, really beautiful thing. And so um, now, honestly, I feel that it helps often that I lead with being gay in a work environment because all of a sudden I, by being so open, I learn about other people's identities and I've made some of my closest friendships with some of the most powerful executives in the world because they too are also gay.
1: It's interesting as you're talking, I'm thinking about your identity. And we talked about not necessarily linking your identity to your work how would you classify or identify your identity? And when I ask you like, who are you? What comes to mind for you?
0: I think I identify as a leader first. And what motivates me in life is to create an environment where people feel so well-respected that they can do their best work, whatever work might be in that definition. But, you know, in the, in the realm of friendship, like being a devoted friend, leading with empathy, uh, making sure that, you know, my friends feel supported. It, my company, giving everyone the tools and the resources and the clear objectives to succeed. And with my clients, uh, really having them see myself as well as my larger company, as a strategic partner to help them achieve their goals in life. Um, And so I identify as leader first and I treat that role with an enormous amount of responsibility. I think it's a privilege to gain people's respect and lead them through the great unknown. Uh, So I try to do right by them.
1: Were you always a leader?
0: Yes. Um, Countless stories from my parents of the ways that I showed that early in age but uh, yeah, I like to walk in front of the pack. I you know, would be the person who would take a bullet for someone. Um, I like to charter the great unknown and redefine what all things mean in life uh, and reimagine what's possible.
1: In your organization, when you are looking for other leaders, are you thinking about it being a nature nurture, a combination of the both of, of both as you're hiring more leaders? I think your company's up to 100 people now. How do you think about leadership from a hiring standpoint, developing? Um, how do you think about it?
0: Yeah, um, that's a great question. So for a long time, you know, we were just growing the business organically and in some ways unintentionally. Uh, there was a lot of unspoken things that went into hiring. And in September, I actually did a virtual offsite with everyone who's a department leader. And the entire sort of six hours together was really defining what does it mean to be a leader at Micmac and and putting words on a page. And we netted out with some key attributes. The first word on our leadership um, sort of, I don't know what to call it, like temperature check, evaluation is collaboration. Uh, To succeed at Micmac as a leader, you have to be able to work well with others. And I say that because not all cultures are like that, Um, especially like European-based companies. Like it just, it's not how we roll. It's a super collaborative uh, leadership team and overall workforce. The second is courage. So you have to be able to give and receive direct feedback. And uh, there was a book that really shaped a lot of the way that we thought, I don't know if you've read it, it's called The Five Dysfunctions of the Team. Yeah.
1: It's behind my shoulder.
0: (laughs) Okay, cool. So I I love that book, it's such an easy read. Um, And one of the things that we all took away from that book was this idea that this is your first team. So if you're, for example, like the chief revenue officer, Your first team is not the sales organization. Your first team is the leadership team. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And making everyone realize that we got to protect each other's best interests in order to lead the company the right way and have crazy alignment at the leadership level, and then instill that same mentality at the next level of leadership, and then the next level has been monumental for us. So you know, we put five different attributes on the page that we all aligned on, and, and we use that um, when evaluating leadership talent, both internally and externally. But I would say the most, most important thing, and that's and it's, it's very easy to get lip service. You often have to do a lot of back channeling to really make sure it's true, is my entire company is people first. So what I mean by that is, for example, uh, one of the big things that we announced last year is free healthcare for everyone. So whether you work at McMac your spouse, your children. We pay 100% of all premiums. And there's so many other examples of the ways that we are truly people first. But I say this because like, if I'm evaluating financial talent, I really try to understand how they think about a P&L and how do they think about employee retention and what resources do they put behind that. And if it becomes clear to me in the interview process or in back channeling that this person thinks about metrics before it thinks about people. There's no, I'm not saying it's wrong. You just won't excel at Micmac.
1: Uh, th- there's just awesomeness in that. And Five Dysfunctions of a Team, all time great book. It's interesting, people ask me for book recommendations and I often say, it depends what you're looking for. Are you looking for fiction? Are you looking for an autobiography? Are you looking for sort of personal growth? But when I think about like teams and if you're good with reading fiction, it is it's a, it's just an incredible book so i'm i'm glad you mentioned it and there's something that's been bubbling up for me i do a lot of executive coaching and there's been a common thread that started to emerge that you're hitting on right now so i'm going to bring it to your attention. And I'm curious to riff on it with you. So I find that let's just take a salesperson. A salesperson's focus is typically to help their client or customer. And that's where their attention is and their energy often goes. I need to make sure that the customer is happy. That's tied to my bonus or my commission. And so a salesperson has a narrower focus as far as who they serve. When they become a sales manager, all of a sudden it gets more complicated because now they can't just serve the customer client. Now they also have to think about their team. Now they also have to think about the leadership team or the organization that you're referencing. And so the, the, who am I in service to becomes complicated. A lot of salespeople struggle with that shift because before it was, I don't want to say it's easy, but it's simpler. It's less messy. It's less complex. And and so I think about what you're talking about, your leadership team and you guys saying, hey, we need to take care of the organization. We need to make sure our organization is healthy and we need to prioritize our organization. But where I go with that is, but at the expense of whom? So does the client you know, have a little bit of less focus? Does our team get a little less loyalty from us as a leader? And then there's a fourth piece of who we serve. So we talk about clients, we talk about our team as a leader, and then we talk about the organization. And the fourth is ourself. And how are we taking care of ourselves? So I'd love to riff on those four with you and help them at Micmac. How do you have people that are healthy with themselves, healthy with the organization, healthy with their team and healthy with your customers? Because it's really, really difficult to have all four of those be healthy.
0: I totally agree. Uh, And I, I love this question. Um, this first time I'm, saying this out loud, and so if I had more time to really think about it, my answer could change slightly. I would say that if I were to net out every decision that's made at Micmac, we we put the employee's interest first, followed by what's best for the company in the long run, followed by customers. But not in the way that we deprioritize customers, but I'll give you a perfect example. Majority of my clients uh, are in CPG. So consumer product goods like Hershey's or uh, Lego. There's one very, very innovative executive who works in the automotive industry, who really wants to work with my company. Like pretty much is like, Rachel, just take my money. I don't have a product for auto today. And so I I think that there's probably another CEO out there that'd be like, take their money. And figure it out. Right, but I know that if I were to take the money and put a team against it at Micmac, they would end up not succeeding because we don't have the product right now to meet their needs. And so I think that's like a very clear example of sort of how we think about things. Uh, And so that would be the hierarchy. I honestly, you know, Amazon is an exception to what I'm about to say. And I think with everything in life, there's always an exception. But if you, and it seems like you're spending most of your career analyzing this, from all the research that I've read, the top performing companies, the best performing teams, it doesn't come down to product. It comes down to team alignment and how they support each other. And so I subscribe to that methodology. And I believe that if we can continue to build an environment for the best performing teams, that everything else will fall into place. And so that's how we've sort of optimized everything. And I can even give you an example from today. A lot of new disciplines are blossoming at Mi'kmaq because we're growing so quickly. So a discipline that I didn't have six months ago was SDR, sale develop, sales development representatives. So it's pretty much an entry-level sales role. We hired our first SDR in June. Now we have four, about to be six. And looking back, we didn't have all of our ducks in a row before we brought on the SDRs. Now we have some learnings under our belt. And today, uh, a leader at MCMAC made a presentation to me on the things that we are going to do to improve SDR performance. And it was all around the team and what we're doing for the team. And I bring this up as an example because I know that there's probably another company out there that'd be like, the SDRs continue to miss goal, like we're going to do X. And that's not what we're doing here at McMahon. We're taking a step back and we're saying, how do we put the team in the best possible position to succeed with the right timeline to see a change? And then we'll make further evaluations. And so that's the, just the mentality that runs through everything that we do.
1: And I think it may be the research you're referencing. Google has really studied teams and what makes successful teams. And they thought it was who's on the team. And we often hear get the right people on the bus. And then their research found it wasn't really who. It was what was what the team how the team was set up and was psychological safety involved. And um, there were other factors as well. And it's it's just a really fascinating study as you think about how you set up culture. You also use the word alignment. And I had somebody on the podcast, Scott O'Neill, who's the CEO of the Philadelphia 76ers and the New Jersey Devils. And I said, him, how do you know that someone's the right fit for your organization? He said, we don't talk about fit. We talk about alignment, uh, alignment of values. And I thought that was such a an awesome distinction because fit suggests find the people that are just like you. That's where you lead to maybe all white men hiring all white men or, or all women hiring all women or all people, all Jewish people hiring Jewish people. Like it can lead to, um, some, some lack of diversity, which leads to all kinds of other challenges. As you think about alignment and, and what does work for people that, that come to Micmac, you talked about collaboration, courage earlier, what are other values that you look for to have people that are aligned within your organization?
0: Humble. There's no, there are no egos at Micmac. Uh, the star of Micmac is Micmac. And I say that because you have, you have to be able to, to change your perspective. You have to be able to give and take and, um, And you can't have an agenda that is your own. It really has to be of the business, in service of our people. Um, So I would say that's a key attribute that I look for in leaders. And I have an interview question that often throws people really off. So I've done this many times over and I'm sure I've left a bad taste in some people's mouths. When people present their work to me, and I don't mean like in a portfolio, when they talk about their work, and I hear I, 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 I. After a certain point in the interview, I go, listen, it's, you know, it's been enlightening to hear about what you've accomplished. When you're talking about your work, I've always noticed that you say I, never we or team or the company name. What do you think that's about? And it really throws people off. And you can tell if, The person puts themselves first before the team based on how they react. And that has been uh, a very eye opening tactic for me.
1: I love it. I. (laughs) But we are going to dive into this even further because when I said those four people that we serve clients, team, organization, or self you didn't even list self. We just kind of moved on. And so that's not lost on me. Like you covered the other three, but you didn't say anything about self. And then here you are saying humility and it's not lost on me before that you basically said, I didn't, we're not going to IPO almost because you didn't even have the ego to believe that this was possible. And so I'm curious if, if self is fourth on that list, is there ever anything lacking within you um, and I'm going to give you a quick example that might might even help shape this conversation. So Stu and I both grew up in the Washington DC area. We have a Washington football team here that we cheer for, um, as painful as it might be. Your friend Gary Vaynerchuk knows what it's like to cheer for teams that are not necessarily rewarding, but well, I'm sure we'll talk about Gary at some point. They had a quarterback a couple of years ago, Rob, Robert Griffin III. He came into the league on fire, dominating his rookie year. Incredible. This amazing experience. He has some injuries. He has some humility takeover. What Robert was amazing at was his rookie year. It was all about we, when they were having success, he was so good at saying, Nope, it's not me. It's our offensive line. It's our wide receivers. It's our defense. It was always we. Mm-hmm. The issue happened when they started losing and he was the quarterback of the team he was still saying, we, And in those moments, he was not saying I. And as a result, because of the position he played and he identified probably as a leader first, similar to you, he lost the locker room, he lost the team and he ultimately lost his job. And I'm not saying it's just because of his leadership. It's also because of his production and all this other stuff. But I do think he lost the locker room because those were moments where they were losing and he was the quarterback and he needed to say I. And so I give you that example, but also I'm curious, it's it's kind of a two-part loaded question, right? Number one is self. Like, what do you do to make sure you're good running this fast-growing yep. organization? And then two, when is it appropriate? And when do we need to say I?
0: Yeah. You're, you're very perspe- uh, perceptive. Um, I struggle with the self part and that's an ongoing journey. And I'll give you a clear example. When I took on growth capital this summer, you know, we went through all this diligence and my new lead investor, Wavecrest goes, you know, you grossly underpay yourself. You need to change that. And I just feel uncomfortable taking money from the company because I have been conditioned to believe that my payout is much later because I own the majority of the company but I deeply understand it now. And another small example, one of my uh, early investors, and he's also on my board, this amazing guy named Danny Stein, self-made operator as well. He asked me how I was flying, this is pre-pandemic to all my clients, because he knew I was taking a lot of red eyes all the time, going back and forth to like LA, San Francisco, London. And I was like, coach, like, what do you mean? And he was like, Rachel, If you're going into meetings with uh, Disney and you're flying coach in the red eye, you are not going to be the best performer. He's like, you have to fly first class. You need to get a good night of sleep. And those things I struggle with that I deeply understand it now. Um, And so I would say the things that I do for myself is one, uh, with the encouragement of my investors and I pay myself, you know, a it's i wouldn't it's not the right description of living wage i i pay myself appropriately as a ceo of the company that we're doing the revenue that we are um the second thing is uh i have a now a dedicated executive coach and uh, and then in addition to a dedicated coach i also have a therapist to make sure i separate like work and life um and then the third was realizing where I need to over index my time, which is ensuring that I have the right executive team in place. Like that is my job, but the functional leadership and the functional day-to-day work is not my job. Uh, And so that's how I put myself in my best position to succeed is by understanding what I really need to focus on. Um, But yeah, I mean, for the employees, we have a huge focus on self, you know, here's a small example. Um, We have an unlimited sick day policy we always had as well as unlimited vacation. And I can get into the pros and cons of that if you want to. But one of the things that was brought to our attention early in the pandemic was that uh, the vacation policy didn't really make sense in a pandemic world. So what we say is for every day that you wanna take off, you have to give one week's notice. So if you wanted a full week off, you give five weeks notice but you're not planning trips right now. And sometimes the world's going to shit and you just want a mental health day. So we heard that feedback loud and clear from employees and we actually changed sick days into what we now called health days. And it's no questions asked, whether you're sick or you need a mental health day, you just straight up say, I need a health day. And it could be at 7am, you know, before the start of the work. And so, you know, these are, small ways that we try to continue to support employees to reflect the work environment that we all operate within.
1: I want to talk about ego. So first of all, I love your, your, your learning your growth personally and just acknowledging, Hey, I need to change if I want to run this company the right way and make sure I'm taking care of myself. I think selfish gets a bad rap because if we're not taking care of ourselves first, we're not going to be able to serve other people. And I think a lot of leaders sometimes just focus on their people, their people, their people, and then they look up and they're not getting sleep. They're not eating right. They're not exercising. And then they're burnt out and they're not helpful. And uh, we actually see with sports coaches, like if you listen to football coaches, these dudes think it's okay to like sleep in the office. They have beds. They actually brag about it. And it's, it, it leads them if that's your thing and that's how you choose to be, that's fine. But I think it's a slippery slope and a dangerous path. Um, ego is something I want to pull on a little bit more with you because it's clear that it's like, hey, this is about micmac Mac. It's not about the individual user. It's about the team. It reminds me a lot of sports. I mean, it's all about the team. I was just talking to a coach who who, who referenced a sports team and and that it was all about about that element as well. Um, but you said something earlier. You said you know, about the IPO and and perhaps not believing in yourself until you had maybe the data or the information or the backing, whatever it might be. Part of your story is being a female CEO, right? And there's research also on confidence and how women are less likely to ask for a promotion or less likely to say, yeah, I should be at this level or we are capable and men are, often go the opposite direction. And and this is a generalization. It's not obviously all, but men will say, no, we can do this before the competence is there. Whereas women will have the competence and then maybe not even raise their hand. So once again, I'm going to bring this back to you. Are there ever moments where maybe you need to step into some ego, or maybe are there moments where Micmac needs to step into the ego culturally? Um, and look, I'm, what I'm doing is, is not necessarily fair. Cause I don't think anybody has any of these, qua- all of these qualities, but I do believe in polarity. And as one thing comes up, another thing might need to come up with it. So I'd, I'd love to riff on it with you.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, potentially being, you know, conditioned as a woman has, uh, given me a little bit more reservation around certain things that I've done. Uh, But it's funny, like I never saw gender my whole life. Even though like being gay is a big part of my life, I've never seen gender at all. Like I have equal amount of female friends as I have male friends. I have equal amount of gay friends as I have uh, heterosexual friends. Um, It's really a me thing. And, but I, what I do agree with, or what you're trying to get at is the ripple effect it has to the company, but some of the things that I, that I struggle with on my own. Um, and so that is actually why I'm trying to undo some of these things, because the last thing that I want is some of my own internal psychology to really impact others within my company.
1: What's the biggest takeaway you've gotten from therapy and, and same thing with executive coaching?
0: Uh, Therapy, it's this idea of fantasies, right? Like we all make up these narratives in our head, which lead to anxiety, right? And it's kind of recognizing when something's a fantasy versus a reality. And I like the word fantasy as opposed to you know other labels that we might put on it. Um, and with executive coaching, I would say you know, I, I worked with this incredible executive coach. His name is Shola. Um, he was, uh, essentially like the executive coach on staff at a and networks for many years. And, and he was also an executive coach with the NFL. Uh, so he has a lot of sports analogies with me, but, uh, he, I think one of the things that he made me realize early in my coaching is that I was being really, really hard on myself in terms of like, um, just where we were as a leadership team in terms of alignment and uh, chemistry and performance. And he made me realize that I didn't have all the players yet on the field. And so he's like, this isn't a fair assessment, Rachel. Not for the people who you're currently assessing, nor you. Like until you have a complete leadership team, then X, Y, and Z can't happen yet. And it made me realize, and one of my, he, uh, hires of last year, this guy, Nick Turner, who's exceptional at it. It made me realize that it goes people, then process, then plans. And by default, because I'm so action oriented, I would want to just jump to the plans before I had people or process right. Mm. And so um, this guy, Nick Turner joined my company in the beginning of October. He's our chief customer officer. So he essentially oversees the entire revenue number uh, from marketing, to sales, to account management, to customer retention. I think he's an incredible leader. And Nick continues to demonstrate to me how it goes people then process then plans. And he constantly is tempering my expectations around certain things until we get you know, steps one and two right.
1: That's really good. I love that. As I was doing research on you, you know, I know that you went to Gap and worked at Gap at the age of 24. And as you were, as based on what I heard from you and doing my research, you were really brought into Gap to shake things up, to mm-hmm. sort of go, you know, it wasn't necessarily about people or process. It was probably more about, Hey, I'm going to create a plan to shake things up. And, and so it makes sense that you would work that way because part of the reason why you are where you are today is because of your ability to see things into the future, to strategize, to be innovative. Uh, And now as a leader, how you you even said on doing some of these things because of the ripple effect it can have on the organization. I'd love to go to that time where you're at Gap, you're 24 years old, you've got this massive role at this company that you and I grew up wearing, at least I grew up wearing their clothes. You see them at the mall. I mean, this is a big time brand. Uh, what, what's it like for you to go in there and actually be innovative within a, a company that's not a fast growing tech startup? <laughs> like it, 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 it it's, it's fascinating because where you would think you would get to use the genius of you is not gap. Um, and so I'd love to just understand that and, and get some sense of what that was like for you. I think you were there for three years.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was, I mean, I wouldn't be where I am today without that experience at gap and you're correct in your assessment. I, uh, again, that I was the plan. And I think it also speaks to where I was at a leadership level, right? Like global director, the powers that be, had done the, hopefully the people in the process before me. Um, I My career strategy has always been to be a big fish in a small pond. So while I could have gone to work at Google or Facebook or Uber, I mean, I'd be a one of many there versus like being the person who can create some incredible change at a global brand. And I, I always kind of advise people that way. It's the same region with Micmac, like, I didn't go after the darling direct to consumer brands. I went after the old school CPG brands. Um, so that's a strategy that I'm going to play for the rest of my career uh, because I, it works for me. But um, with Gap, you know, I was really there at this remarkable moment. And I always tell people I got my MBA, not just in retail, but in uh, stakeholder management, in navigating complex organizations. And I, I got to do it on Gap's dollar. Um, I was hired by this guy, Seth Farbman. Seth then went on to be the CMO of Spotify, took them through IPO. Uh, he now just sits on boards and he, I'm sure he has other things up his sleeve as well. But I, Seth is a visionary leader who throughout his career uh, has had a knack for identifying ri- rising talent. Um, and he's given a lot of people in their careers, their big bre- break, myself included. And the great thing about when Seth hired me is he potentially said, I'm hiring you to get in trouble. Like you are going to create change in here by not playing by the rules. And I will fight the really hard battles for you or with you. And he really, really did do that. Um, so when we talk about team alignment, uh, you know, I felt really supported by him that I wasn't gonna lose my job by doing the crazy things that I did. Now there was a second player involved in all this Um, and the story in a second will have more significance. But when I interviewed at Gap, Seth was the global CMO. He reported into the global president. The global president reported into the CEO who at the time was Glenn Murphy. The global president was this woman named Pam Wallach. And she had been on and off at Gap for 20 years, sort of a retail executive. Um, And Pam was the one who approved hiring me. So the job description said, 15 years of work experience. I was 24 years old when they hired me. So 15 years of digital experience. Uh, and Pam, when I met with her said, either half the stuff that you just said to me is a lie, or you're going to create a lot of change here. And, she, and essentially you're hired. And I got to watch Pam navigate a really, really challenging work environment because she was one of five precedents and they were all gunning for the CEO's job because it was known that Glenn Murphy was gonna retire. It was political warfare and she was the only woman amongst those five presidents. Uh, Fast forward, sadly, Pam passed away uh, in December and I was able to connect with her daughter who's around my age uh, and share with her like how, how meaningful Pam's support of my career and just, honestly, the opportunity to observe Pam in the room, how that has shaped me as a leader. Uh, And so I say all this because while Gap is not, you know, the tech company, I still believe it's actually one of the greatest companies to work for because that company truly does put people first. So it's founded by the Fisher family. You know, they're, they're still alive and well and they're on the board of Gap. And, you know, they were one of the first companies to give same sex couples health benefits way before the government. And I think I took a lot away from that experience uh, in how to lead people first. And, and Pam and Seth were incredible mentors to me.
1: What did you learn from Pam and Seth?
0: Seth is, I would say his, his ability to spot talent and how to create a path for them to succeed is enormous. And, you know, something that we have to actively do intentionally at Micmac every single day. Um, and with Pam, I would say it's, it's about how to build consensus and alignment at the leadership level, Mm -hmm. Um, which is where I think I spend most of my time internally right now.
1: You mentioned causing trouble and getting to gap and causing trouble, but your job now is different. And so it's kind of interesting, Are are you still able to be disruptive to sort of take your mindset that you had when you were at Gap and approach it to Micmac? Or are you having to use a different muscle? And I think of like risk takers and rule followers and people that are patient and those that are persistent and, and just the dichotomy of it. And I'm curious how you've had to evolve. We've talked a little bit about it, but is that sort of getting in trouble mindset embedded into Micmac or is it been an adjustment and change because of what your end goal is or your mission or your vision for the company?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I'm trying to think how to answer it uh, in case my team is listening. Uh, I think something that I've learned over the last six years of building Micmac is that is where when it's appropriate for me to be my disruptive self, whether that's being disruptive in the market from a product, marketing, or messaging standpoint, whether that's being disruptive at the client level, and you know going around people to get things done, and whether it's effective or not to be disruptive internally. Because what I actually have learned is that sometimes my um, tenacity can have negative effects on internal work streams. And so uh, I'm really trying to temper where it's appropriate for that type of energy um, and blue sky thinking to enter the room.
1: That's awesome. I'm similar. I'm a dreamer. And so I love ideas and creating and innovating. And then when I am leading people or teams, I often Forget no, let, let's just go to basics fundamentals here because that's actually what's being called for. Um, and let's just stay between in the lines. We don't always have to color outside the lines, like sometimes let's yeah. just color inside the lines. And so I, I hear you on that, and it's something I'm I'm working on as well. <laughs> um yeah. and there's there's another piece to this that I'm really curious about, which is you're 24 years old and you're at gap. I would assume you're thought of as being young. Um you start your company at I think 28 27 you said how old were you when you start your company 27 Yeah So you're young mm-hmm. What do you say to people that are told that they're young when they enter a room
0: uh, Use that to your advantage Um I think it's I think it's important to pay attention if someone says you're young because are you showing up young You know, I just interviewed uh, on Friday, a brilliant woman, I'm not gonna share for what role. I'm like, holy shit, this woman is so smart. She's young, she's probably 27. What I was trying to figure out, I very quickly within the first 10 minutes was like, this woman is exceptionally bright and deeply understands what we're trying to do in this particular role. What I was trying to figure out was, could I put her in a room of C-suite executives? Does she have executive presence? Will she know how to manage those relationships and move work streams forward with people who are operating at that level and potentially 20 years her senior? And I think when you're young star talent, you know, for me, one of the, my superhero superpower skills is public speaking. Like you put me in a room of 50 people or 25,000 people and we're gonna make money. Like it, I just know it, it's proven every single time. Um, And I know how to hold my own with people who are 20, 30 years my senior. So I was able to develop an executive presence very, very early. So when people are saying you're young, I think it's important to understand what that means. Is it because they don't feel like you have an executive presence in the room? Because that's something that's coachable. Um, Is it because you're leading with it? Don't lead with it. That threatens people. Um, or is someone saying it because they're threatened by you? And now, how do you make them more comfortable with who you are? Um, and you know, on that front, because I've experienced that countless times, what I always explain to my team is, uh, everything's a two way street. You gotta give and you gotta take. Like my side hustle is being an executive recruiter. I help my clients hire talent and I help my clients get new jobs. And it pays you back in spades. Like, what is your value add in the room beyond what you're just doing in the day to day?
1: Speaking, you do a lot of speaking. Uh, we mentioned Gary Vaynerchuk. I know you you hmm. do speaking through Vayner Speaking. Um, talk to me about why do that. Uh, what do you love about it? Obviously, you, it sounds like you're talented. I know you have a theater background, um, but but why continue to do speaking and even go after it and, and continue to make it a part of your existence?
0: Uh, One thing that I think my parents taught me really early in life is to lean into your strengths, keep strengthening your strengths because I can outspeak most people, especially my competition. I a hundred percent should be over indexing there. It builds Micmac's brand it strengthens relationships with current customers. It allows us to gain new customers. It allows us to recruit talent. It also builds my professional brand, which has halo effects on Micmac. I mean, and I enjoy doing it. So it's a win-win. COVID has made it even more of a win-win because the the trade-offs of all the speaking that I would do in a pre-pandemic world was the travel. And does it really make sense to take this speaking engagement versus like going to Cincinnati to see um, But now I get to do all of it via Zoom and it's amazing.
1: You mentioned 70% of your company has never even met you. And you mentioned Zoom and remote work. What advice or thoughts do you have to people that are new to this and are not used to being outside the office and working remotely? There are a lot of companies that are forced to be operating that way and it's not necessarily by choice. So any thoughts or advice for them on how to navigate that?
0: Yeah, um, if you're a leader, you have to be really intentional. Like, not, there's seren- The thing that I hate about the pandemic, of course there's many things I hate, but one of the things I personally hate is the elimination of serendipity. Like you and I right now could be doing this in real life and let's just pretend you came to New York to do this you could have ran into five people on the street that would change your life. But now you just log into Zoom. And so the same thing goes for work. Like serendipity has been eliminated. Everything is intentional. And you need to be intentional with how to bring people together in a virtual environment. You know, We've done so many different things at Micmac uh, over the course of the year. I think one of my favorite things that we did, this is fun for anyone, there's this, app that someone created called pizza time and literally you like upload a bunch of people's addresses no matter where they are in the country everyone gets delivered a pizza at the exact same moment it's crazy we have employees in 15 states across four different time zones and it brought people everyone together everyone was taking selfies with their pizza it was like just this awesome celebratory fun thing that brought people in a, together in a physical and digital component So I think you just have to be really intentional about um, team building and morale in this virtual world from a leadership standpoint. The other thing that you have to be intentional about is that not everyone can show up in Zoom the way that they want to show up. Um, You know, same way with learning. Some people are visual learners, audio learners. And so one of the things that we've had to be really intentional about at Micmac is creating spaces that are not just about Zoom for people to show up and be able to participate in. So one of the best things that we did, it's like, it's always about these small things that create a world of difference. So we use, um, employee engagement software called Lattice. It's like where the org chart lives, where we do performance reviews and Lattice had this feature where you can connect Lattice to Slack and we're power Slack users. And so, uh, this woman who was started as literally my assistant and now is our people coordinator because she demonstrated to us, she is such an amazing uh, panache for that type of thing. She created this Slack channel called Praise. And so when any of your colleagues do something that exemplifies our values, you go into Lattice and you essentially like give praise to Dan for collaboration and then you write what happened. And then it gets broadcast to the whole company and logged to the manager so they can see that during review time. The whole company got behind it instantly. And it's created such transparency across the company in work streams that I would never even have visibility to as the CEO. So there's, you just have to be intentional and you have to think about all the different ways that people can show up in a virtual world.
1: I think you used the word intentional four maybe five times just um, in that segment, which the podcast is called Intentional Performers Podcast. What do you do to make sure that you're you're good? You talked about therapy, executive coaching. What else do you do intentionally to make sure that you're taking care of yourself?
0: And so during the pandemic, I got a house in the Catskills. So I've been living in New York. I went to NYU. I've essentially been living in New York City since two thousand five always saw myself as a city person, like never had a huge interest in nature. I still have my place in the city, but I never really go to be honest. Living in the woods has been transformational. Like connecting with nature has been transformational. And also when I was in my apartment in the city, I had like a 700 square foot, one bedroom. I went kitchen table, Peloton by couch. My whole existence was in this 700 square feet and I, I felt crazy like the months that I was doing this during the pandemic. And when we got this Catskills house, I'm in my office. I get to close the door and the door goes two ways. And when I leave my office, I close the door again. And now I'm in the house and it's not about work. And I think for some people, I don't know, if it's for everyone, but space, I realize how much space impacts me and creating a safe space for work and then a safe space to live my life outside of this room has been transformational.
1: That's amazing. So I want to start to wind down with you and uh, just, first of all, hit on what exactly Micmac does, because I think I know, but I don't, I don't think I can articulate it nearly as well as you. And um, so if people are interested in learning more about Micmac, you know, tell them a bit about what you all do. Um, If their company would be a good fit for you. Uh, and then also where people can find you and your career. I know I, I first heard about you on Instagram and that's where I started following you and enjoying your content and reaching out to your cousin Stu and saying, are you related to this other typograph? Cause I don't know too many typographs and sure enough, uh, you are. But tell us a bit about Micmac, um, what you're up to, what y'all do and, and where you might be heading and going. And, and then we'll give you also a megaphone to shout out anything else that you want to promote or, or share. It could even be a nonprofit or your social media. We just leave this as a megaphone time to put out information that might be helpful for the world to get.
0: Cool. Um, so Micmac, we're an e-com acceleration platform for multi-channel brands. So if you're a brand where the majority of your sales come from places like Amazon, Target, Walmart, Ulta, Sephora, Dick's Sporting Goods, Petco, Drizzly, Minibar, uh, you will probably become our client because you live in darkness with that end customer data. So we give brands like Unilever, P&G, Hershey's, Diageo, Lego, more insight into the e-commerce customer journey than they've ever had before. Uh, that's what the company does. We're software, like the same way that you would purchase Adobe or Salesforce is the way that brands work with us. At uh, So if you're a brand that sells in places like Amazon, Target, Walmart, feel free to check out mcmac.com to learn more about us. And for me, uh, yes, I'm active in social. So you can follow me on Instagram or Twitter or LinkedIn. And it's just my name, Rachel Tippergaff across all these places.
1: Fantastic, and, go ahead. And
0: there's a shout out. Uh, Micmac is hiring like crazy. So please go to micmac.com forward slash careers. You literally can live anywhere in the U S to work for us.
1: As long as you are brave, courageous, collaborative, I know your podcast is also called brave commerce, which I was able to check out as I was studying you and researching what you're about. Um, so people can check that out as well. I am at Brian Levinson on on Twitter, um, also on other social media platforms as well, but Twitter's where I like to play most. And then you can listen to all these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast. Rachel, I felt like we could have gone on for another hour or two, but I know you've got a lot going on. Um, It's great to meet you. I look forward to meeting you in person one day. Um, And once again, thanks to Cousin Stu for connecting us.
0: Thanks Stu, and thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to
1: Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem.
0: I have an interview question that often throws people really off. So I've done this many times over and I'm sure I've left a bad taste in some people's mouths. When people present their work to me, and I don't mean like in a portfolio, when they talk about their work, and I hear I, 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 I. After a certain point in the interview, I go, listen, it's, you know, it's been enlightening to hear about what you've accomplished. When you're talking about your work, I've always noticed that you say, I, never we or team or the company name. What do you think that's about? And it really throws people off. And you can tell if the person puts themselves first before the team based on how they react. And that has been uh, a very eye-opening tactic for me.